Well, good morning, everyone. We have met. My name's Paul. And I want to begin uh, this morning by passing on to you a sentence from the Bible. Um, in this, uh, this sentence, in fact, from the Bible is, in fact, a serious warning. And the sentence from the Bible reads like this. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Today we're actually going to be looking at four action-packed chapters in the Bible. Great battles, great tragedy, great events, great grief. And through it all, we're going to be confronted with a great God, fearsome and almighty. He is the holy God who knows. He is the God who weighs our deeds. He is the God into whose hands it is a dreadful thing to fall. But what if that same God fearsome and almighty what if that God who judges all people what if that God who is incomparably holy what if that same God offered deliverance offered safety offered rescue from his judgment I reckon that would be an offer worth listening to very carefully don't you think Let's pray and ask for God's help as we listen to that offer. Let me talk to God for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your Bible and its truth. We thank you, Father, for the warnings that we find in the Bible. And we thank you, Father, too, for your offers of deliverance. And Father, as we read these great stories of uh, events from long ago, And we are confronted by you and your greatness. Father, I would pray that you'd help us to hear you clearly and that we would respond to you rightly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, point one on your outline, uh, which is inside the bulletin uh, there. Let me tell you, the Philistines, uh, one of the bad guys of the Bible. Whenever you're reading the Bible, it's always safe to boo the Philistines. The uh, Philistines lived in the land that was promised to the Israelites, but they weren't actually driven out of Israel under Joshua. So the Philistines occupied the land to the west of where the Israelites lived. They were a coastal people. They lived along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And the Philistines were constant enemies of the Israelites. And uh, so chapter 4 begins, doesn't it, with the not-so-unusual event of a battle between the Israelite and the Philistine armies. But the outcome of this battle should disturb us. Let me read it for us. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped, Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. A great battle, a massive battle, 
and a terrible defeat of the army of the Israelites. 4,000 killed in battle, a military disaster. But of course, it's not just a military disaster. What we need to know is that whenever the Old Testament Israelites went into battle, there was always a more important spiritual, theological component to their battling. It's a terrible defeat of the army of the people of the Lord by unbelievers, by people who worshipped other gods. It's more than just a military defeat. It is a spiritual defeat. And the Israelites immediately picked up on that. Have a look at verse 3 with me. Verse 3. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? See, they understood those elders, didn't they? They understood that there was a spiritual dimension to what was happening on the battlefield. And they were right at that point. But they were wrong in their response. Because as we see, as we keep on reading, their solution to the defeat was what we might call today Operation Ark of the Lord. Okay, Operation Ark of the Lord. Let me keep reading verse 3. Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now we need to, we need to figure out this Ark. The Ark of the Lord was a rectangular box. It was about 120 centimetres long. It was about 75 centimetres high and wide. It was constructed way back under Moses by the Lord's instructions. It was wooden, but it was in fact covered in gold. And on top of the ark were two cherubim, who were sort of strange angelic figures, and they faced each other like that with their wings outstretched on top of the ark. And the ark was carried on poles, that had rings on the side where the, pole was, the poles were slid through. The ark was incredibly significant. Inside the ark, okay, were the two stone tablets that Moses received with the Ten Commandments written on them. Inside the ark, uh, there was the, the, the manna that they were fed uh, on their wandering through the wilderness. The ark was where once a year the sacrifice of atonement was offered. The ark of the Lord had gone before them as they were traveling through the wilderness The ark had led them into the promised land. Really hard to overestimate the significance of the ark in Old Testament Israel. And look at how it's described there in verse 4. Can you see it? It's called the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. That's an impressive title for an impressive thing. And so the elders of Israel figured we lost because we didn't have the ark with us. I wonder if you can spot the error. We're going to come back to it. But the call goes out. Bring out the ark. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Okay, it's high drama, isn't it? The Israelite confidence is clearly massively boosted by the presence of the ark. The the ground shakes with their roar. And, of course, the Philistines' confidence, well, it's badly shaken, isn't it? The Philistines have massive regard for the Lord and his strength. They know of what happened in Egypt. 
They're fearful of what might happen to them. And so it's a rematch of these two armies, except now the Israelite army is carrying into battle the Ark of the Lord. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. Do you reckon that's a stunning description of a stunning outcome? After such a build-up, it's a massive defeat, and yet it's described almost matter-of-factly, isn't it? In just two sentences, what must have been a massive battle is described defeat. The outcome of the first battle, 4,000 killed. Here in this second battle with the ark, 30,000 killed. But there's more bad news, isn't there? Much more. Verse 11... The ark of God was captured. The ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim, was captured by the pagan Philistines. And in fact, as we keep reading, it's the loss of the ark that is seen as the greatest tragedy of all. It's not the 34,000 foot soldiers that, that never returned from battle, but the loss of the ark. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli that we met last week, they were killed in battle there in verse 11, we're told, but it's the loss of the ark which is most mourned. Eli, the priest in Shiloh, the judge of Israel, 98 years old, blind, sitting in his chair, he's told by a survivor of the losses, he's told about the death of his only sons, but it's when he's told of the capture of the ark that things happen, isn't it? Verse 18, verse 18, when he mentioned the ark of God... Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. Eli's pregnant daughter-in-law, she hears the news of the death of her husband and the death of Eli, but again it's the loss of the ark that she mourns most. She goes into labour, she's overcome by her labour pains, she gives birth, but look at her last living moments there in verse 20. As she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. What a terrible day for Israel. You need to recognize that. What a great victory for the Philistines. A great military victory, sure, but much more than just a military victory. Remember? The capture of the ark is a spiritual victory. In fact, you know what? It seems that with the capture of the ark, the Lord himself has been defeated. These verses seem to describe a terrible and, de and decisive defeat of the Lord himself. But of course, it takes less than a second glance to suspect that may, that may not be, in fact, the case. Because hopefully you're thinking, well, hang on. Last week in chapters 2 and 3, we read of the Lord's judgment being pronounced on the wickedness of Hophni and Phinehas and the house of Eli. Remember the Lord's warning back to, in, sorry, to Eli back in uh, verse 34 of chapter 2? Glance at it with me. Chapter 2 and verse 34. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. And here in chapter 4, we see that judgment falling. What at first appears, you see, to be a defeat of the Lord 
turns out to be the Lord working out his purposes and plans and keeping his promises. In fact, you know what? The events of this chapter, they're not so much a matchup between Israel and the Philistines. The events of this chapter, in fact, describe the matchup between Israel and the Lord. His judgment is falling. His judgment is focused on Eli and his family, but it's broader than that. In fact, back in Deuteronomy 28, way back before they even entered the land, the Lord promised them way back then that if they failed to obey him, if they turned away from him, he would cause them to be defeated by their enemies. And so you see, every time that Israel was defeated by the enemies, every time that should have been a signal for them that things were not right between them and the Lord. That there was need to repent. But that wasn't their response in this chapter, was it? Their response was, bring in the ark. Almost seems like they were treating the Lord like a good luck charm. They were treating him like their servant and not their king. And so they found themselves under his judgment. Hannah, way back in chapter 2, in that great prayer that we thought about a couple of weeks ago, she said, those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. And that was true for Hophni and Phinehas and Eli. And that truth might help us to anticipate the fate of the Philistines now. Point two on your outline. After their victory of the Israelites and the capture of the ark, the Philistines thought, we've defeated the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so they put the ark of the defeated God before Dagon, their victorious God. It's another matchup, if you like, this time between the Lord and the Philistine God, Dagon. And let me read it to you. And look, it's okay to laugh during Bible readings when it's funny. Chapter 5, verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. I reckon that's funny, don't you think? Imagine the, uh, the Philistines surprise. They walk in, hey, What's the statue of Dagon doing lying face down before the ark? Imagine, imagine having a God that you all have to sort of crowd around and prop back up to stand back up. What sort of God is that? It's funny. It's deliberately funny. And I'm not sure how intentional it is, but the irony of the words in English, at least, at the end of verse 3 is classic, I think. Do you reckon? See it? End of verse 3. Dagon had to be put back in his place. And I reckon that might be a good summary of the whole chapter. As we keep reading, we can see that Dagon is well and truly put back in his place. Verse 4, But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That's funny. The so-called victorious, powerful God Dagon is literally rendered armless by the Lord. He is just a headless, prostrate, prostrate statue before the Ark of the Lord. He's like a mannequin that you'd find in a dress shop. It's pathetic. He is a laughing stock. See, clearly, clearly the Lord is still the Lord Almighty enthroned between the cherubim. Clearly news of his demise has been an exaggeration. He lives 
and he reigns and he will not be mocked. And we can see that truth re-emphasized in what happens next. Verse 6. Verse 6. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. And so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God on to Ekron. Exactly what was afflicting the Philistines is debated. Tumors, tumors sorry, can refer to, to swelling. And so the most common suggestion, which seems to make sense, is that it was bubonic plague, which apparently causes swelling in, arm, in the armpits and the necks and groins. And that would, would fit with what we read later in chapter 6 of rats who were destroying the country. Perhaps they were the carriers of the plague. Exactly what it was, though, doesn't matter, because clearly it is the judgment of the Lord who is clearly not defeated at all. In fact, he is the one who is now defeating the Philistines single-handedly without any help from the Israelite army. And so the Philistines begin to play hot potato with the ark. They pass it from one city to the next. It's a bit like nuclear reactors or Telstra towers. No one wants them in their own city. And who could blame them? In the end, the people of Ekron, another of the Philistine cities, they'd had enough. Verse 10, halfway through where I stopped. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they've brought the ark of God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. And so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. See what's happened? The so-called conquerors have become the conquered. And their surrender is recorded in chapter 6. In the first half of chapter 6, you can read how the Philistines returned the ark to Israel along with a gift, a, a guilt offering of five gold tumors. And I have no idea what that would look like, along with five gold rats. But the Philistines sent them with the ark to pay honor to the Lord, we're told in verse 5 of chapter 6, to honor the Lord. Tribute to the victor. Because you see, the Lord had defeated the Philistines. The Lord had demonstrated his sovereignty, his rule. The Lord had proved the truth of Hannah's prayer that those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. A lesson you know that sadly Israel still had to learn. Point three on your outline and verse 13 of chapter 6. Verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley. And when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this 
and then returned that same day to Ekron. It's great, isn't it? The Ark of the Lord has been returned to Israel, but the question remains, has Israel returned to the Lord? And the answer, sadly, is no. It seems that they still thought of the Lord as their servant rather than their king. It seems they still failed to recognize the holiness of the Lord. They still failed to recognize that the word of the Lord should be met with trembling obedience. And we can see that in the lives of some of the men of this city of Beth Shemesh. You see, the ark, because of its significance, was governed by all sorts of laws and regulations as to who could touch it and how it could be handled and so on and so on. And it was actually covered over so as to protect the carriers from death. But some of the men of Beth Shemesh, they knew better. They completely disregarded the Lord's precise and gracious warnings and they received the promised consequences. Have a look at verse 19 with me. But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom will the ark go up from here? Let me tell you, that was a completely avoidable tragedy. It was completely avoidable if those men had recognized the holy sovereignty of the Lord. If they had just listened to the word of the Lord, they would not have died. The ark, remember, was a bit over a meter long and there were 70 men gazing into it. Hard to imagine such foolishness. But the Lord's hand was against them. You see, it would seem they'd learned nothing from their defeat by the Philistines. Nothing from the death of Hophni and Phinehas. Nothing from the capture of the ark. Nothing from the fate of the Philistines. And the Lord shows himself defiant against such arrogant, disobedient folly. God is not domesticated. He is not tame. He is good, but he is not tame. And the question of those guys from Beth Shemesh was right there in verse 20. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And you know what? Incredibly, it took 20 years, 20 years before Israel came to answer that question. 20 years. The ark was moved from Kiriath-Jearim and there it stood for 20 years. 20 years for them to ponder the truths of the Lord that they should have recognized from the events of chapters 4, 5 and 6. Truths that Hannah had already spelled out. That the Lord is holy and sovereign. That the Lord is a God who knows that by him deeds are weighed. That the Lord brings death and makes alive. The truth that the Lord will silence the wicked in darkness. The truth that those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. That's what they needed to ponder. That's what they needed to learn. And so do we, friends. That's precisely what we need to learn. Because so often, too often, the Lord is not our king, we think, but our servant. Too often, you know, it's, when, it's only when life turns difficult that we have focused our attention on him. Then we send out the call, you know, bring in the ark. And so we recommit to church as if, gee, that now bounds God to act on my behalf. We give more money away as if somehow that binds God to act on my behalf. We pray harder and we expect God to answer us. We do something noble and costly and impressive to God. 
Too often we treat the, the Lord as if he is domesticated and tame and exists only to do our bidding in our time according to our plans. But that is a very different God to the one we meet in these pages, isn't it? The Lord that we meet here has teeth. He is defiant. He is holy. He is the Lord Almighty who sits enthroned above the cherubim. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of armies who can and will shatter all those who oppose him. Friends, there is no room to muck around when it comes to God. He doesn't fit in with us. We fit in with him. It is a fearful thing to have him as your enemy. And he knows your deeds. And he weighs them. And he will judge from heaven the ends of the earth. That's the true and living Lord God. That's the Lord we meet in these chapters. Fearsome and holy. And I reckon that our response to these truths should, must surely be the same question of those people of Beth Shemesh. Who can stand in the presence of this Lord, this holy God? That's the pressing question. That's the question we need answered. And it's answered in the verses to follow. And I reckon the answer is stunning. Point four on your outline. And let's have a look at chapter seven and verse two. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jearim and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Don't you reckon that's a stunning answer? Yeah? Stunning? Look at the punchline of Samuel's answer there. Look at the last 12 words. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel offers the promise of deliverance. The deliverance of the Lord himself. To a disobedient, disloyal, thoroughly undeserving people, the Almighty Lord, the Holy God, promises deliverance. And I reckon that's incredible. Don't you? What the Israelites deserved was the judgment of the Holy Lord Almighty at the hands of the Philistine army. They deserved to be wiped out. But instead, they're offered deliverance. They're offered safety. They're offered rescue. They're offered salvation. It's an incredibly glorious, stunning promise. And in response, Samuel calls on the people to do just two things, really. You can see them in verse 3. Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths. See, in order to return to the Lord, the Israelites had first to turn away from their misplaced loyalties. Rather than having their confidence in the so-called gods that weren't gods at all, they had to abandon them. They had to put aside their old life before they could pursue the new. And the Bible word for this is repentance. And repentance is never easy. Folks, because life is hard in this broken world, we are constantly in search of things, ideas, people that can make life easier, more bearable. Sometimes, you know, they're religious things. Like the Israelites, they were farmers. 
And so they gave their hearts and minds to the gods of the nations around them because it was thought that if you worship them, you'd get good crops. Part of the worship of these fertility gods involved sex, so it was a fairly um, attractive alternative. But those sort of religions, I guess, aren't quite so popular these days, but there are any number of religious varieties out there to choose from, all promising salvation of some sort, all promising help of some sort. It's not always religious, though, is it? For us these days, it's more likely, I would think, to be materialism, stuff, wealth, that sort of thing. We give our hearts and our minds to that in order to get through life, to to cope. So we go for the career and our bank balance and our stock holding and our house. We look to our stuff, our wealth, to save us, to get us through. And even though they may not be terribly religious things, they're all false gods. They're idols. They are pseudo-saviors. So you see what Samuel says? If you guys are returning to the Lord, you need to turn away from those false gods, those pseudo-saviors. You need to abandon them. You need to change the direction of your life and love and loyalty. 180 degree change. That's what Samuel calls for. Repentance. It's more than feeling sorry, isn't it? It's more than regret. It's activity. It's genuine action. Repentance is hard. It's costly. In a sense. Because you must give up your old pursuits. And instead, see what Samuel says next? Instead he says in verse 3, Commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. Turn away from your old God, who isn't a God at all, and cling to the true God, the Lord God Almighty. Turn away from those pseudo-saviors, those Dagons lying headless on the floor, and throw yourself onto the true Saviour, the Lord who can truly deliver you. Again, it's more than a feeling, isn't it? It's activity. It is to commit and to serve. It is a change of lifestyle. It's a radical change. That's what Samuel called upon the Israelites to do. And folks, I'm hoping that you've picked up already from what I'm saying that Samuel's call to Israel back there and then is still the call for us to heed this morning. For friends, remember, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And let me tell you that on our own, we are doomed. Not, like, not just like the Israelites... Sorry, just like the Israelites, we are under the, the right and just sentence of the Lord's condemnation. Not one of us can stand in the presence of the Lord who is on display in these chapters. Not one of us on our own. And yet stunningly, graciously, the Lord promises deliverance even to us, just like the Israelites. Except, you know what? To the Israelites back there and then, it was deliverance from his judgment under the Philistine army. To us here today, he promises deliverance from hell itself. Deliverance from unending, eternal destruction and punishment. And our response must be the same as that of the Israelites. Repentance and commitment. If we were to keep on reading into chapter 7, and it would be great for you to do that, we'd see that the Israelites did repent and commit. They put away their false gods and served the Lord Almighty only. They confessed their disobedience. They asked Samuel to pray for them, and Samuel offered a sacrifice on their behalf, and the Lord answered them. And you can see what happens in verse 10. 
Verse 10, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. Deliverance, rescue, salvation. Friends, we don't have Samuel to intercede for us. He is long dead. But we have someone superior in every way imaginable. Like we thought about last time, our priest is Christ Jesus himself, the ultimate priest, who has already offered the ultimate sacrifice himself as he died on the cross. And in that death, Christ Jesus, sinless and holy, willingly bore the righteous judgment that ought to fall upon us. So that even today, right now, if someone in this room were to repent... And to commit, right now, that person would be delivered from the penalty of their sin. They'd be forgiven. Because, you see, God promises that there is no condemnation for those who have repented and committed themselves to the Lord Jesus and serve him with all their heart. No condemnation. And that is stunning. And you know what? There will soon come a day... When the risen Lord Jesus will return and he will deliver his people, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the very presence of sin. He will deliver them into the new creation with no sin, no pain, no suffering, no death, life forever with him. And that's breathtaking. So friends, today I commend to you the Lord of deliverance. And I urge you to seek him with all your heart. And I urge you to abandon, utterly abandon, all other rivals who compete for your heart and your mind. Commit yourself to Jesus. Serve him. For in him, and only in him, there is genuine deliverance from sin and death and hell. Commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. And he will certainly deliver you. How about we pray? Father, we can only imagine, I think, what a dreadful thing it must be to fall into your hands as our judge. And so, Father, we are so grateful for your offer of deliverance. Father, I would pray that you would help each one of us to consider carefully the truth about you that we we find in these chapters we've been reading together. And convince us, Father, that not one of us could stand in your presence alone. For we are too stained by sin. But convince us too, Father, of the truth of your promise that in Jesus there is forgiveness, deliverance, safety 
And Father, I would pray that for each one of us, we would put aside rivals and that we would commit ourselves wholeheartedly to serving you and your son. Father, help us to hear you clearly today and give us the ability, Father, to respond rightly. Father, we pray that you might deliver us. Amen.